Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm great, darling. Yeah, you really are. I'm really (laughs) buzzed. The sun is shining and it just, it's like switched something on deep within my soul and I just want to sing. It's great (laughs) to be a part of it. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen you this happy. I, it's been dark for so long. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, now it's not. It will be dark again. I'm don't to say. <laughs> don't say that. Let no. me ride this way. No, I'm very happy to be here with you. Yay! On me a sunny too. day. Also, um, it's Christmas Eve yes, when people are listening. Not now. Not now. <laughs> <laughs> Hurrah! Hurrah! <laughs> Merry Christmas! Happy holidays! <laughs> no, but uh, our show does tie into that a bit because on the show today, in honor of the swift approach of the new year. We'll be looking back at the last year in books, discussing the books we most enjoyed, and looking forward to what we will be reading next year. But wait, you say, I wanted an author interview. Well, we've got you covered, listeners. We're always nice to you. (laughs) I'm losing my mind. (laughs) And what a gift it is, this interview. I'm really trying to tie it into the larger theme. I don't think it ties very well. Just but keep going, babe. It's just Never like change. a sort of magazine compendium show. We're trying something different. Um, we will be talking to the author Anne Rowe, whose latest book, Francis, A Life in Songs, is an unusual, beautiful, and moving portrait through poetry of the life of St. Francis of Assisi and his resonance today. It's a really wonderful book, um, and it's had the most glowing reviews from the critics, and I think it's a really great way to cap off the year on literary friction. Also, something on Christmas Eve get back to Jesus a bit, you know, remind <laughs> get us back to JC. <laughs> what the holidays are for. Stop it. Um, sorry, I don't mean to mock Jesus. I think you can mock Jesus all you like okay. and also leave space for those who do not want us to mock yes. him. Okay, great. Um, Octavia, do you want to introduce Anne a little more? I absolutely do. Anne Rowe is the briefings and obituaries editor of The Economist. and uh, She's the author of six previous works of nonfiction, including Pilot, the biography of an invented man, which was shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Award and the WH Smith Award. She lives in North London and we were really pleased that she came all the way to Dalston to hang out with us. Yes, and this is not just a book praising Jesus, so please stay with us because she has a lot of really, really, really fascinating things to say fact, about St. Francis. It's not at all a book about No, it's not about Jesus. Jesus at all. You've set this up badly. <laughs> <laughs> so today we will talk to Anne about Francis, A Life in Songs, then chat about the books we've enjoyed most this year and the books we're looking forward to next year. And finally, Anne will rejoin us for our last 2018 edition of Book Recommendations. Lots of book recommendations today, um, which we always enjoy. So I think I'm catching your weird enthusiasm. <laughs> weird enthusiasm. How dare you? It's just boundless joy and optimism. Yes, yes. This is an optimistic nihilist in action. Appreciate it. So stay tuned with us for a very bubbly edition of Literary Friction. <laughs> and Ro, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. So I wanted to start by just asking about your career as an author. You've written a number of books before on a very wide range of subjects from Pontius Pilate to the quality of light. So how did you decide in that diverse and fascinating career as an author to to move on to St. Francis and what attracted you about this character? Well, my books are all about pretty random subjects. I think they're as far away as you can get from my day job at The Economist, and I love doing that. I just write about anything that comes into my head and starts to interest me. And I'm lucky enough to have a friend who has a timeshare in Umbria. So I've been there a few times and walking in the woods there, looking at the hills and 
just wandering around the old churches, I began to get quite a feel for St. Francis because that is the place, of course, where he was wandering and preaching. And lines began to come into my head and they didn't seem to form a narrative like my other books that I'd written before, which were all obviously in prose. And I felt that I could possibly get his life, catch his life better if I did it in poetry. But I wasn't entirely sure of this. It was uh, quite a big idea to do such a thing. So I just let it sit. And every so often, more ideas and even whole verses would come into my head and little incidents in his life would strike me. And I would just let everything coalesce, really, in a rather organic way. And when it had come together and I'd put some of the Francis poems and some of my more modern poems together and seen how they reflected each other and echoed each other, I began to think I'd got an entire book here. And that was quite a good moment when I found it did all hang together and seem to work. That sounds very exciting. <laughs> it was. It um, was. Was St. Francis... Uh, a figure that you knew a lot about before you started writing the verses or did you do much research into his life along the process? I knew his life generally. I'd been brought up as a Catholic with all the saints and so on. And he was he was a favourite, but he wasn't um, a great model to me in my life or anything like that. And I began to research him simply by reading the contemporary accounts of him because they are very full and detailed and give you a wonderful picture of the human being, of the man, which is unusual for accounts of that time. Usually they're only interested in hagiography. They don't show you the human being. But um, Francis's first biographer, Thomas Di Celano, paints such a wonderful picture of this man walking through the woods, picking up sticks to play like a vial, picking up scraps of paper from the floor, um, holding birds in his hands, all this sort of tiny detail of his life, how he used to spit and cough and put food into the hood of his habit and smear ash on his head and do the most extraordinary things. And suddenly you felt you were in the presence of a, a full-blooded human being who had plenty of human problems as well, as well as being a saint. Well, that's one of the things that I found so enriching about reading the book. As someone who <clears throat> was not that familiar with St. Francis beyond very light general kind of appreciation mm. of this particular saint and his connection to music and animals in particular. But I found reading it, there was such a surprising humanity to him. And he was complex and contradictory in ways that, you know, we don't necessarily associate with saints. Yes, I think contradictory is a good word because we're very aware of the tenderness of St. Francis, if you like, the fact that he is so loving towards creatures and towards all creation and praises it and praises God through creation. And I think we forget the other side, which is the severity of what he was preaching and teaching, which is that we must all repent. And he was amazingly ascetic and he was wedded to poverty and to the giving up of all possessions. And that severe contrast between the tenderness and the severity is something I very much wanted to bring out because I think he shouldn't be considered a cuddly saint. I think saints in general are very uncompromising people, quite hard to live with. 
and even more hard to imitate. <laughs> I love this idea of St. Francis is hard to live with. But I think that's a perfect way to talk about this book, because, of course, this is a book not only about St. Francis as he lived, but St. Francis as he resonates now. And I wonder if that was always something that you wanted to explore or it was something that started to occur to you as you were learning more about him and writing about him? Well, that's exactly how it happened, that I began to see Franciscan echoes around the place as soon as I was thinking about him. And whenever I write a biography, because I've written a few, I'm completely bound up in the life of the person and I'm thinking about them all the time, really, when I'm not at work. And uh, I think probably the incident that crystallized it for me was when I was waiting for the bus one day in Brighton on Marine Parade and I saw a boy come and feed the seagulls and throw out bread to them and get them to behave. After a while, he managed to get them to line up neatly on the rail and I thought, that's exactly like the Sermon to the Birds, which is one of the most famous incidents in the life of St Francis when he goes and persuades the birds to listen to him preach. And there's, you know, there's a teenage boy in Brighton managing to convince the birds that they can behave as well. And so I wrote a poem about that and I thought, yes, that does. That reflects him. And because I do a lot of people watching and I have written poems about people and incidents I've seen in London or in Brighton, I went back to some of the ones I'd written before and I thought, yes, you know, that, that fits in as well. I and mean, there's a poem about nakedness where Francis is stripping off and kind of offering his nakedness to God. And then I'd written a poem about this chap I saw stripping off on Hove Beach in the winter and dancing on the beach and trying to commune with the sea. And I thought that again, that's a reflection of Francis in the modern world. And I really like the way these are playing with each other. They're you know, that each one is helping and enhancing the other. And I, I like the way that works. I think now might be a good time now that we've been talking about these poems to, to hear a poem from you. So the one we were hoping you could start with, well, actually, I should say, rather than read a poem, we're going to ask you to read a group of poems, because the way you've structured this is that you have an introduction to a particular part or incidents from Francis's life with, with excerpts both from his contemporaries' writing and his speech. Then you write a poem set during the time about Francis. Yeah. Then you write a poem that is Francis's reflection in the contemporary time. And then there's a little I don't know what you would call what you would call well, it. Well I suppose they're codas really. Coda, yeah. Yes, I, that's what yes. I was going I to mean, say, I but I'm think so of them glad almost to hear as Instagrams that. because they're little things that I just take out of nature, and I've done that for a while. Yeah, but a coda is a good word. Um, so yes, could you read lepers, and then and then we'll talk about that. So it begins with a quotation from Thomas Di Celano, France's first biographer. While still in the clothes of the world, he met a leper one day. Made stronger than himself, he dismounted from his horse and ran to kiss him. And that was the moment of his conversion. In fact. Your horse, left on the grassy verge, crops unconcerned, reins loose. In an adjoining field, earth's overturned. A ploughman whistles careless songs, his hat tipped low. And you, what are you doing here? You hardly know where in this scene you should belong. 
distant or near, staying or fleeing, fending off contagious fear with both imploring hands or else embracing it, fainting at leper stink or else hard chasing it. But now you kiss that rotting flesh slow, stomach churned. Now you press close his bandaged love, stunned, silent, burned. In an adjoining field, earth's overturned. And now a poem set in St. James's Street in Brighton. He's given wide berth in the checkout queue at Morrison's. The stench of ancient piss makes the girl sniff. Lank threads of greying hair straggle from underneath a Russian hat. His jeans fray to the floor, and every ripped vent in his coat shows lining poking through, curiously clean. Puddings are all he's bought. Jam mini sponges, Danish cherry slice, fruit corner yogurts, finding sweetness there he won't get otherwise. Job done, he goes shakily, stiffly out, pausing with care to count his change into a banker's bag. Within the beard, his delicate small lips murmur a silent word. Might take a kiss. And then the group ends with a little coda. Thrown out, the flower-sack scarecrow spreads ever-open arms, wears resurrection white. Thank you. It was wonderful to hear you read them. And I was just left really struck by what you said before about, you know, Francis being known as a cuddly saint, but then also being, you know, very um, ascetic and quite hardline in certain ways. Mm. And then in this section, there's this sense of total and utter um, love and giving nature, mm. but that's also very extreme. It is extreme. Yeah. And it's I, absolutely. And it's a challenge. Yeah. You know, and you realize the challenge. Well, that was when I realized it, actually, when I saw the tramp in Morrison's and I thought, could I do that? You know, there is the modern equivalent of someone everyone shuns, like the leper in France's time. You know, you keep away from these rather smelly old tramps. And yet, you know, Francis says, go up, embrace them. It's a, it's such a challenge to us. Well, and 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 a call to respect the humanity of the other person, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. Which I think people forget so frequently in the modern world that you look at someone very different from you for whatever reason, living in possibly a very extreme way, and mm. it's very easy to not see them as a human, to just see them as, like you say, a challenge. And actually, this call to reach out and cross those boundaries is so important. Yes, yes it's to to see the God in other people, actually. I mean, like that Indian greeting, you know, the namaste, where, which means, you know, the God in me salutes the God in you. I think that's a wonderful thing. And that is really the, the lesson Francis is teaching us as well. You talk about seeing the God in people. And I wanted to talk a bit about religion and spirituality, which to me in the world in which I live, it's quite unfashionable. It's um, completely unfashionable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and that's not to say that's true around the world, but at least in the sort of literary sphere, I think um, people are almost afraid to talk about faith and God and spirituality. Yes. And this is a book that really embraces spirituality and, and thinks about it and examines it. And I wonder if you... what how you went about that and if it was something that was difficult for you or something that you worried about expressing at all. It's not difficult for me because 
I have always been very aware of the divine in things. Um, in other books of mine, I've begun to trail to trail this thought a bit. I, I mean, my book about light was full of explorations of the divine nature of light. And so I began to explore it there and see how far that would go with an audience. Uh, it seemed fine there. Uh, I think of poetry, though, as almost a sacred calling. I think poetry does touch on the divine or can touch on it. So it helped that I was writing this in poetry. But I was worried, yes, extremely worried for all the reasons you say, that it's difficult to talk about it now. And yet you can't write the biography of a saint without being incredibly explicit about the religious side of it. There are two poems in here, for example, that are about the Eucharist and not only about that, but about the real presence of Christ in the bread of communion, not just communion as a commemoration, which is hard enough, I suppose, for many modern people to take, but the sense that you're actually consuming the body of Christ. And there I was helped a lot by my Catholic upbringing because when you make your first communion when you're only seven years old, you are quite horrified to think that actually, yes, you are eating Jesus. <laughs> I had that feeling myself, so I was brought up in that extreme strictness and ardor which he knew. And so it wasn't difficult to tune into it again, even though my religion now is much more, I would say it's much more ecumenical and it takes on parts of all kinds of faiths, actually. I branched out into all sorts of beliefs, so I am not as doctrinaire at all as I was. But I do think it helped, and I think also it it was a source of concern that this would be a book that would find a very small audience and, <laughs> and wouldn't be reviewed in The Guardian. <laughs> I wonder if we if we could go back to what you said about poetry feeling close to the divine because it was obviously you know St Francis is so associated with song and you do throughout your poems get the sense of of him as a character who sought a, a kind of abandon joyful abandon religious mm. abandon all mm. of it spiritual kind of commu communing with something greater and um, you know song and poetry but especially song as such crucial parts of worship to so many different religions and I just wonder why you think those forms of expression take so well in, in that part of our lives, whether we are religious or not, whether we are spiritual or not. There is something elevating about them. Yes, it's true. Well, I always think of music as the highest of the arts. I think it, it gets closer to whatever lies out there, whatever lies beyond us. And I think many people feel that, whether they're religious or not, um, that there is a great potential to go beyond ourselves in music and, and in poetry. And certainly music infuses the life of Francis at every point. You know, there's the songs of the office, the chants of the office. There's his own musical tradition, which is troubadour, which were really the pop songs of the time. There's a sermon he preaches, which is actually based on a line of a troubadour song, which is a bit like somebody modern, you know, basing a sermon on a line of a, Rolling Stones song or something like that. You know, he was very modern in his musical tastes as well. But what I love too is the sense of bird song, you know, the song of creation and the idea he had that the birds are praising God all the time. And so the music of religion that we so naturally use in churches and so on, he also found in the woods. 
it's probably a good time to hear that now. Yeah. <laughs> Would you mind reading the vials yeah. in the wood mm. section, which is probably one of my favourite bits. So what inspired this poem was the incident where Francis, walking through the woods, picks up two sticks and holds them as if they were a vial and you know, draws one stick over another and sings. He pours out his thoughts in French um, because that's the language of the spirit to him. It's the language in which he praises God in song. And there are two lines of Provençal in this. <laughs> now spring's own woods go robed in green and chiming birds unloose their throats to fill each tree with April rain, the branches staves, the leaves the notes, as spirit words spin out of you, del temps nouvelle, temps de l'amour, adios tot glorios ar cantar, delight you need this language for. You half dance past, sticks in your hand held crosswise, cleaned of bark and pith, your wonder violent aching wand, mad playthings to make music with. But if a proper bowl and bow were sent divinely to you now, one note, one word would move you so that you would die not knowing how. The modern poem was composed on a Hampstead evening in August. Tonight, faint fumbling chords from a guitar rise out of someone's garden in between the automated clanking of the trains. The sound of summer as the thick leaves are, the shrieks of children up late and unseen radios and rows through open window panes. And somehow those insistent echoing strings weave all the dusk together, creeping thread connecting star to sky and sky to tree, shadows to bandstand, diving kite to wings, stray dog to hill line, new moon overhead to loitering lovers in the grassy sea, their wide unnoticed world bound up entire by music. And why not our bodies too? In their least vein and nerve and gleaming hair, held and sustained by that same silken wire, till the unravelling, when love draws through cool breath instead and the releasing air. As the reed for a breath, so the string for a touch, tenses, waits. I love, especially in the contemporary poem, the feeling of connectedness. And that's something that came out of this whole collection, is how all of these things are tied together, partially by this sort of divine spirit of, of beauty and goodness um, mm. that can be found in so many things in the world, whether mm. whether it's an animal or a plant or a musical instrument or a song or a person. So I wonder if that was something that you really felt was, was true in terms of how Francis looked at the world. Yes, that's an interesting question, because I think nowadays a lot of us are very aware of the the connectedness of everything, that we're all interdependent. I and mean, that is where the ecological movement draws its power, that we all depend on each part of creation. And there is nothing so small that it doesn't play some part and have some importance in how this whole planet is organised. And I think it's, it's a little difficult to attribute the same feeling to Francis because he was very loving towards creation, towards all plants, animals, towards the phenomena of the weather, 
and everything you can think of so that it's easy to make him a saint of the ecological movement, if you like. But he loved all these things because he saw God through them. He loved them because God had created them. So in a sense, they're a means to an end. It's slightly different. And so I think we do have to be careful, um, and I had to be careful, not to write the medieval poems, the Francis poems, out of my understanding of what the divine and the sacred are, but to try and get back to his understanding of what creation is and what God is. Quite a difficult task. That's such an interesting thought, because obviously figures like St. Francis get separated from that as history rolls on and people appropriate them for their own needs, right? And the flattening out of, of certain aspects of their character or as you say of the orthodoxy of their faith actually yes i felt this had happened with francis in a way it's very good that we rediscover these saints and and draw from them the lessons we want to draw for our own time and they are going to be different and that's fine because the the force of the personality and the teaching can come through in a new way and so i don't think we should worry about that or feel we're misrepresenting the saint but i think in his own time he was doing something different and therefore we had to be very aware of the man he was and how he operated and how he thought as well as drawing from him what we can use. And I think the great spirits who've moved through the world, all the great characters, never really leave us. They leave an echo behind and that's something that is meant to be left behind so that it helps subsequent generations make sense of things. It's interesting to hear you talk about what people leave in the world because you are, of course, the obituaries writer for The Economist. And having read you speak a little bit about your job, one of the things that I was so fascinated by was the way that you talk about how you construct these obituaries, which is really you're trying not to write about what the world thought of people, but what people had to say to the world and get inside their head and write about them. So can you talk a little bit about that? process because I just find it so exciting and fascinating and a a wonderful way to think about writing obituaries as well. Yes, it's um, a process of total immersion and you have to remember that it's done over about 24 hours because uh, we don't decide at The Economist really which obituary we're doing or I decide but I um, I can't settle on it until everybody else has heard about it. And until Monday is dawned and we know if anyone else has died, um, Monday lunchtime till Tuesday early afternoon is all the window I have to compose it. So it is total immersion in what my subject has written or uh, interviews they have given. Um, I do go from anecdotes to try to reconstruct what they're like physically to get some sense of how they move in the world, how they talk. All those little bits and pieces, and I often fire off emails to people who've met them and say any little things about them at all that you know. You know, what do they like eating? Um, do they have words that they like using particularly? And then apart from that, I'm busy reading any memoirs they've written, anything at all that I can find. So that's a process of seeing the world through their eyes. And it's partly reconstructing the physical presence of the person, but it's also trying to get, as you say, inside their heads. It's an effort to catch their essence. And this is something, so I try to do it week by week on this miniature scale of a thousand words, but it's also something that informs me when I write biographies. And I've written quite a few now, 
and they're all written, I hope, from inside the head of the person. So that I am trying to understand how they see the world and not go once again through the narrative of the life in the way people tend to from birth to death and giving our own narrative and imposing our own judgments on these people because that's not important. What's important and what we've lost when these people have gone is their sense of what was important, their sense of the world, that particular vision through their eyes because we're also subjective. We all see the world in our own way. And so that's what's important to reconstruct. And that, again, was something that informed Francis, something that inspired me as I wrote it, so that I felt right. I do think I know how he would have looked on that and how he would have looked on that. And therefore, I'll try to write this poem from his point of view. And the Francis poems, I do try as much as I can. It's quite difficult being a, a woman in the 21st century to get into the head of a man in the 13th, you know. <laughs> But I do want to try and make that effort to do so. You can really see the thread between those processes. And it sounds like a very generous process, actually, to immerse yourself so fully in the in the identities of all these people. And, and what you said about, I know we were talking about saints before and, and, and these spirits that leave echoes. But I wonder, do you... Do you find that you carried elements of the, of these people whose obituaries you're writing with you for for a long time after you've done it? It sounds so immersive to me. <laughs> I can't imagine how to separate it again afterwards. Well, <laughs> it's not so bad in the week by week schedule actually because you know that. Well, a I have other jobs to do at the Economist straight afterwards, so that distracts me, and then I go back usually to my own writing at the weekend. So it's not quite the same. I must say when I'm working on a biography though, the character that I'm dealing with really does influence me quite deeply. When I was writing about Pontius Pilate, for example, I used to get into quite black moods and I'm a very sunny person normally. I'm not like that. And I used to call them my pilot moods because I felt <laughs> not so much that he was a, a bad character. I felt he was just completely out of his depth and really frustrated most of the time and cross and so I would get these sort of frustrated cross moods and when I was writing about Shelley the poet um, I used to get quite wild um, moods I used to find myself at dinner parties suddenly holding forth about liberty and freedom of the press and women being oppressed and all this sort of thing which I do believe but I don't rant about it <laughs> and I thought heavens what's happening to me and I thought, all right, I'm taking on some of the character of Shelley. I'm, I'm becoming a proselytizer. I'm, <laughs> well, that was good for me, but it was also slightly alarming. I love that. <laughs> it makes me want to write a biography just so I can absorb the characteristics. It better of somebody be someone else. you think you can live yeah. with. <laughs> um, that's a very good point. <laughs> Do you have a favorite obituary that you've written or one that you feel most proud of? Oh, well, there's a famous one about a fish that uh, I'm quite fond of <laughs> because I wrote that on another kind of slow, sunny um, summer's day when there was very little news about and no one was dying. But there was this fish <laughs> um, which had been caught 48 times and put back was very famous in Leicestershire where it lived <laughs> and I just wrote I tried to write from the point of view of a fish 
And that really was quite interesting to imagine. I was at the bottom of this lake <laughs> and sort of moving around among the weed and so on and watching this bait come down through the water. I really felt quite fish-like by the end of it. <laughs> I, yes. I have read the fish obituary and it is masterful. It's wonderful. <laughs> I wish I could find another another animal one of these days. I did do a cat, a fish and a cat. But that's <laughs> we'll look forward to the fox. Uh, well, there's a wonderful I mean, there's fox, a fox poem. In, there's a fox in Francis, and certainly that was a little bit of thinking about the fox too. Mm-hmm. One final question. What on yes. earth are you going to write about next? Do you have any ideas yet? Do you know, Carrie, I, I, I really don't have an idea next because whenever I come down from a book, and it always feels like a coming down, I feel rather worked out and almost bereft. And you go around for a long time, or I go around a bit like a chicken without a head, you know, or a bird without a home, thinking well, maybe this will do, or maybe this will, or maybe I'll fix on this. And something will come into my mind, and I heaven knows what it will be, because I never expected Francis to, or any of my other subjects for that matter. They just turn up out of nowhere. So I think the answer is just be open to whatever promptings come, and I'll, I'll follow it and see where it goes. We look forward to seeing where you go. Thank you so much, Anne Rowe, for coming on Literary Friction. It's been that a delight a to talk to you. That was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, we're back. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is our year in review show. So we're going to just talk a bit about the books we love this year, the books we're looking forward to next year, how we generally feel about books, maybe, give you some news, fun holiday wrap-up show. So we hope you enjoy the next 15 minutes of us wanging on about books, (laughs) (laughs) which is what we always do anyway. So Octavia, what were your favorite books this year? Tell me all about it. Tell you all about it. My top book of the year has to be To Throw Away Unopened by Viv Albertine, which I read for the show. We had Viv on the show. If you haven't heard her interview, go back and listen to it. She was absolutely banging. Um, And yeah, I don't know. It's just such a brilliant read and it's really stuck with me. It's very funny. It's very emotionally frank. She's a fabulous writer and very generous in the way that she treats her readers and also her subjects. And in being incredibly honest about herself, she's still generous in that. I don't know. It's something something very clever about the way that she expresses herself. And it's very, very fucking genuine, which I respond to very well always. Um, and also it was a massive highlight for me to meet her because I was a huge Slits fan when I was a grungy young teenager. So that was a big one. Um, also, surprisingly for me, actually, The Pisces by Melissa Broder, which I loved reading, but I, I didn't realize it would stick with me quite as much as it has. Um And I recommended it on the show at the time, but I want to give it another shout out because it's actually, it's a lot cleverer than people might assume just from the way it was marketed even maybe a little bit. It's about love, sex, addiction, mythology. But what I loved about it is it gently pokes fun at the zeitgeist of kind of millennial culture, but actually it supports it. And it is very kind in the way that it looks at these things and the idea of millennials as snowflakes with fake problems and all that kind of stuff. Actually, she she treats it with a lot of compassion. Um, and clarity so there's no kind of elision of those things 
Um, and also, it's very sexy. And actually, the sex is probably one of the things that stuck with me the most. There's some hot sex with a merman, and it's kind of great, you know? Um, and then... I really need to read that one. Yeah, I think you'd I, really dig it. I think I, it sounds up my alley. It's Love a, a good sexy. <laughs> up your alley, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, great read. It's a great holiday read, actually, as well, because it, th- it makes you think, but it's also just her writing style is very easy. Um, I recommend it. Big, big, big time. Christmas presents if you need. Um, then this one, I don't know how many of you guys will be into this, but Hatred of Capitalism, a semi-text reader, is one of my top reads of the year, which is a collection of um, essays and other writing edited by Chris Krause and and Sylvain Lotringer, who are the editors of Semiotext. Um, and it's a collection of writing by a lot of radical writers and thinkers that I really love, some of whom are writing today, some of whom are, are no longer with us, including Kathy Acker, Jean Baudrillard, Eileen Miles, Deleuze and Guattari, Michel T, Foucault, some of the big guns, some of the less big guns. Um, and it's some of it's fiction, some of it's poetry, some of it is uh, uh, critical thinking. It's just brilliant. And dipping in and out, it's, it's been making me feel good in a hard year of capitalism, living yeah. under capitalism. That <laughs> sounds like the kind of thing that I would really love to love, but like, <laughs> it's like I'm just not, I just you know wouldn't. I'd love to read it to you, Carrie. Yeah. I'd love for I you would to come lo- over. Actually, I wouldn't mind you reading it aloud to me. Yeah, I'd love that. But we can do it periodically. The Hatred of Capitalism Hour with Octavia. I tried so hard to be the kind of person who loves critical theory in college, but it's just not my not my thing. It's not it's not a lot of people's thing. It's my thing, but it's not always my thing. Yeah. Sometimes I need a break from it. Hence the Pisces. Brilliant. Brilliant break from critical theory. Cool. But then I'm, I had to I'm, go back to it. No, I'm glad that you recommend these kind of things on the show. It's, it's nice to have somebody with different with a different um kind of taste for books, but a similar sensibility yeah. of love and openness. That's why I like talking to you yeah. about books, babe. Because you know, yeah, we have different Different vibes, meet, meeting in the middle. My last is The Lonely City by Olivia Lang, which is just, it's a very simple recommendation for me, really, because it's just a very artfully put together, confident, clever book. It's a pleasure to read. It will make you think, but not too hard. It will teach you new things, but nothing that you can't handle. It's just, it's very, it's a very um, thoughtfully put together piece of work. And um, I think anyone who reads it will identify with a lot of it, whether you've spent time in New York, whether you're into the kind of art that she talks about, because the subject of loneliness is something that nobody can separate from. We all experience it. To live life as a human being is to experience loneliness in some profound ways. And it's just I think it's just wonderful to to have a contemporary look at that. Mm. Um, in a kind of urban setting as well so yeah that's a fantastic book I think that's also if you're buying books for people for Christmas it's a great book to buy pretty much anybody because there's something in it for every every kind of mind agreed yeah seconded great what about you babe what do you oh well let me tell you all about it so all of my (laughs) tell you all about it all of my books of the year actually are books that have been published in this last year which is well you are very current yes I do try to keep on top of things it is my job in some ways (laughs) as well but anyway So much like you, the book that is my book of the year is not something that I expected to be my book of the year at the time that I read it, even though I totally loved it and tore through it um, when I read it when I was on vacation. It's Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday, which I think I recommended on the show before. Um, It's the story of a love affair between a decorated aging American writer and a young woman. It's also the story of a seemingly unconnected man who is Iraqi and detained at Heathrow. And the novel manages to bring these two stories together in a totally interesting, unexpected, um, thought-provoking way that I thought really raised 
fascinating questions about the ethics of representation and art and all of these things. And so it's it's a novel that makes you think, but it's also just a pleasure and a joy to read. So I really loved it. Um, Educated by Tara Westover was also one that I totally loved. Um, it's a memoir about what education really means by a woman who's had an absolutely fascinating life. She grew up in a family that was totally off the grid in Idaho, very devout Mormons, and somehow managed to not only educate herself, but ended up getting a PhD at Cambridge. And she's a beautiful writer, but also a beautiful thinker, I think. And it's a very generous memoir in a way that it didn't have to be. And yeah. I, I really loved it. I'm dying to read it. She sounds like a real, like, once in a lifetime kind of human being. Right? She's a star. Very extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Um, also... My version of Viv Albertine is Essie Adugin, who yeah. I loved meeting, but also I really loved her novel, Washington Black. I think um, I was so glad to be able to talk to her about this novel because I think it it works on so many different registers. And it's this amazingly researched, uh, textured, exciting, adventurous historical novel. It's also a very deep book about the psychological effects of slavery and and doing those two things at the same time and managing this juggling act and also writing about like flying machines and love affairs and um, jellyfish and you know it, it, it just does so much and I think does it so wonderfully and beautifully yeah she held it beautifully didn't she yeah you never feel like she's going to drop you at any no, point no no yet it's this very yes there's so much happening yeah, yeah. that was I mean it, I that nearly made my list as well but then I saw it, it was on yours <laughs> um and then finally i won't say too much about this but but i really did love normal people by sally rooney (laughs) you really really did i really do loved it so hard sally forever (laughs) i i like i love it sort of um uncritically in some ways you know i i just i just loved reading it so much you have a very emotive reaction to her writing like it really gets you in the guts it it did and maybe that means i'm still a 21 year olds like girl who loves sex and love and things like that but I, I, I think I think she's doing more interesting things anyway but on an emotive level I connected with these characters in an intense way and I think that's something that has to be paid attention to yeah big time so now let's talk about what books we are looking forward to reading next year Okay, so mine are not all brand new at all. Um, that was not in the spirit of, of this segment, but go on. <laughs> you know, I just can't help but be disobedient, Carrie. I'm so sorry. Um, these are all on my to-read pile, okay? First up is We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, which is a book of essays by a writer called Samantha Irby, um, which was sent to me by my friend Maria, your friend Maria, our friend Maria. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, shout out to Maria. Shout out to Maria. Big shout out to Maria. Thank you so She's much. She's in the Philippines the right now. Oh, Maria. Yeah. <laughs> I am jealous. Um, yeah, I just, I haven't read it yet. I, I flicked it open when she sent it to me and thought, oh, this looks brilliant and funny and great. And I'm going to save it for January when I'm going to need my spirits lifting because of all the dark and the rain. Um, but yeah, it, it just seems like a very raw, real, funny, excellent look at a life that, you know, is complicated like anyone else's. Roxanne Gay really loves it. Um, and it's had a lot of accolades. So that's great. Then my next is a kind of duo, both books by Rachel Cusk, Transit and Kudos, because I read Outline at the beginning of this year and I really enjoyed it. Uh, And I've been wanting to make time for the next two in the trilogy and just haven't for all the same reasons that 
anyone doesn't get to read the books they want to read. Um, Same. So, yeah, yeah. And and because we got them at, at that event ages yeah. ago. And, and I read Outline and loved it. Yeah. Exactly the same. Yeah. So but I, I can't think wait it's to read them. Hard. Sometimes it can feel difficult to commit more time to one writer when there's so many other voices that you want to be reading and so many other demands on your time, which is a tricky thing about trilogies, I think, sometimes. Um, so, yeah, I really want to make time for them in January. This is a bit of a digression, and I feel like I really shouldn't be saying it as somebody who works in publishing because our business sort of relies on on this. But I feel no loyalty towards authors whatsoever. You know, I will read their next book if it sounds interesting to me, but if it doesn't, I just won't read it. Yeah. But I think the fact that I liked Outline and want to read the rest of Cuss Trilogy means that I really liked it. You really liked it. Really what I want is to go on a really nice holiday somewhere in February where the sun's shining and take them both with me and just read them back mm. to back. Maybe I could go to Athens because Outline is set there. I mean, this is a complete and utter fantasy. But, you know, if anyone wants to make it happen for me. Uh, in what capacity? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I can guarantee you interesting conversation. That's about it. Um and then uh, finally, a book called Crossing by Pytim Statovsky, who we had on the show and whose writing I absolutely loved. So we spoke to him, or I spoke to him actually, Carrie was away for that show, about his first book, My Cat Yugoslavia. And it was a book that I just, I loved reading. I loved his energy as a writer, but also speaking to him. He's a, a wonderful human being. But he's such a smart and sensitive author. Um, and when I finished it, I immediately just thought, I can't wait to read what this guy writes next. So I did, you know, I don't like you. I don't feel loyalty on like a wider scale. But if someone's writing really gets me behind the belly button, then I'm ready for whatever's coming next um, and hope not to be disappointed. And I'm sure it won't be because I, I just think he's a very talented guy. So Crossing begins in the ruins of communist Albania. And it's about two best friends who decide to try their luck in Italy. Um, and the blurb says... The struggle to feel at home in a foreign country and even in one's body will have corrosive effects, spurring a dangerous search for new identities. Um, and it sounds like it's it's exploring similar territory to his first book, but in a different setting and in a different context. And the territories that Python is exploring are ones that are limitless for me. You know, identity, yeah. place, sexuality, gender and community, essentially, I think. Um, so, yeah, I can't wait for that. Sounds great. What about you? Well, um, one of the things I am really looking forward to reading is Out of the Woods by Luke Turner, oh, which is out too. in January. Mm -hmm. um, he is a really, I've, I've read a lot of the stuff that he's written in The Quietus, and I think he's a beautiful writer. And this is a memoir about sexuality in Epping Forest, and it just sounds really special. Um, so that's one. Um, also, Notes to Self by Emily Pine. I don't know if you've heard I've about heard this. Of that. Yeah, she's an Irish writer. It's a collection of essays that is already out in Ireland from a small press called Tramp Press. They're an amazing indie press, um, and they just the, it's these two women who just have incredible taste. Um, but it's it's recently been sold in the UK and it's going to come out in January with Hamish Hamilton. But a number of editors I know told me that they were absolutely desperate to buy this it seems to have made waves in a way that a lot of submissions haven't recently so I can't wait to to see what everyone's so excited about and finally a book called The Parisian by Isabella Hamad which is out in April um, it's a debut novel about a young Palestinian man sort of making his way around the globe after the First World War. It is very long, which always makes me a little nervous. It is very long. <laughs> but um, a number of people have said she is a wonderful talent, including Zadie Smith, um, who apparently doesn't give her name to 
many things and has sort of pointed this woman out as one of her brightest and best students. Um, so I'm going to give it a try and see what it's like. No, that sounds great. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> no god that sounded so sarcastic i meant it yeah I no mean, I, like, will. I, I will that sounds great let me know how it goes <laughs> and then before we move on to our usual book recommendations beyond these book recommendations we just have a bit of news so the the first piece of news is that we're going to start doing minisodes yeah so you will hear from us every two weeks. Yeah, we want it, we want we want to give you a bit more, <laughs> a bit more juice. Yeah. So the format is still a little bit TBC, but it will be probably a slight expansion of the things that we're talking about in each show. Maybe you'll get to know Octavia and I a little better if you're interested in finding out more about us. <laughs> <laughs> finding out more about Carrie's football career. Yes, <laughs> that's the only thing I talk about. Um, I'm not playing football right now, so oh, no. it's very sad. You must be missing it. Yeah, I really am. Yeah, I bet. Um, so more nuggets like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you can But also wait. books. More books. Very important things. More very, very fascinating intellectual discussions that yeah. are um, also down to earth, which is what we, we aim for oh, every, honey, every that month. A USP, as they call it. <laughs> uh, who knows? But, so listen, um, that's going to go out on the podcast. Um, so you'll be able to find those on iTunes or Acast or wherever you get your podcast, Spotify. We're on all the platforms, I think. Yep. Um, and then finally, uh, NTS now has an app. So please download it. Please listen to our show through the app. Um, if that's what you like. It's a great app. It's yeah. really, it's really, really cool. And you get access to all of the other brilliant shows um, that are on NTS at the moment. And they, they are really putting out absolutely brilliant stuff right now. So get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. We'll be back in a little bit with our book recommendations. Welcome back to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here with Octavia Bright and also back with Anne Rowe, who is here to give us her book recommendations. So Octavia, do you want to start with yours? Yes, I would love to. Um, so I'm recommending this month a book called Cool For You by a poet and writer called Eileen Miles, um, who I, I just love. And I, I came across them a while ago through their poetry and didn't realize that they'd written a novel and then found this. It was first published in 2000, but it was reissued last year with an introduction by Chris Krause, who's a writer that all our listeners know I really like. Um, and the book is uh, the book is amazing. It's, it's a, a look at the way that memory operates and it's very sensorial in the way that it takes us back into these moments and the lead character is called Eileen but you know it's is it Eileen themselves or is it somebody else we don't know um and I mean a, a lot of people if you're not familiar with Eileen Miles at their work you might have seen them they were immortalized in Jill Soloway's television program Transparent as the character Leslie Mackinaw who was a, a kind of poetess um, radical feminist lesbian who um, goes out with one of the main characters in the show. And and um, Jill Soloway was going out with Eileen Miles when she wrote the show, so it was a direct thing. And there's a very interesting interview with Eileen 
where they talk about what it was like seeing their poem in the mouth of an actor portraying them on this television program. I mean, it's brilliant. Anyway, the the, the novel, I'm, I'm not really going to go into what it's about because that's kind of not so much the point. It, it, it is about bodies and gender and class and incarceration, um, queer identity, incarceration within a body, incarceration within an institution. Um, and being on different sides of that. But really the thing about it that I find so extraordinary is just the energy of their writing. Um, and they have this extraordinary turn of, of phrase, something like, okay, I'm just gonna read a quick line. Dave's cap was beige or maybe pale yellow, like a soldier's day off. I just love the way they think. It's it's so, anyway, it's, I'm, I'm very rapturous about it. Um, it's been a real joy to read. It's been It's been something that's taken me to another place but it's very much still the place that I'm in, if that makes sense. It's, 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 they have a perspective that enriches the way you look at the world. When you look up from the page, you start to see more through the eyes of Eileen, which I think is great. I think Eileen's eyes are, are eyes that more people should look through. So I recommend it very highly. Cool. Anne, could we have your recommendation, please? Yes, um, I would recommend uh, Austerlitz by W.G. Seabold, um, because it came out some time ago. And the reason I returned to it was I was doing an obituary of Anthea Bell, um, who was a very great translator of works, especially in German. And uh, I thought, oh, I'll have a look and see how she translated this. And it is an absolutely beautiful translation, so that you can't believe that Siebold actually wrote it in German, because it flows so in English. And the sense of flow is the most extraordinary thing about this book. I think it's the only book for a very long time that I have read through with every single word because I'm a terrible jumper around in books. I tend to pick them up and just sort of read a bit here and a bit there and and not settle. But this one is extraordinary how it pulls you in. Um, and Siebold has a great art of doing this. I'd read The Rings of Saturn, which is a pilgrimage, if you like, which Ossolitz also is. Rings of Saturn takes you through East Anglia in a very um, discursive way. And in Ossolitz, he starts, um, the narrator starts in the waiting rooms of a railway station in Amsterdam. And it is, in fact, the story of a man called Ossolitz who is trying to trace his family who disappeared in the Holocaust. He's tracking them all over Europe through various reading rooms and various digs in cities. And every place he goes is minutely described and everything he discovers is described. And the text is broken up with photographs of the buildings that he's looking at. And there is a theme that runs through the book of fortifications and buildings and structures, which is also a reflection of the structures that Osterlitz is trying to build in his life, the family that he's trying to build again. And a sense, too, of the, the carapace, if you like, the outer layer that he has built against the world and how he is trying to crack it apart and find out who he really is because he has never known who he really is. So the narrative varies between the narrator and Osterlitz who keeps coming back into his life always with a backpack and always never seeming to age but with a bit more information about 
you know, where his father might have been or where his mother might have been. And these two lives move together and intersect through all these parts of Europe. And it is most extraordinary. And you seem to be going off in many different digressions. But in fact, all the digressions are moving towards this final culmination of finding out what happened to his family. It is an incredibly moving book. Um, obviously, the great shadow of the Holocaust lies over it the whole time. And yet, in all its detail, it seems to be bringing in all the sort of fascination and all the differences within Europe. It, it's so rich that it's extremely hard to describe. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I cannot get over how Siebold holds all these threads in his head and eventually ties them all up. I read that book when I was in college and completely loved it. So I agree with everything you've just said. <laughs> so I am going to recommend this month The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner. Um, this is a book I've been meaning to read for a while. Um, it obviously got fantastic reviews, but also I loved, 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 loved her previous book, The Flamethrowers. Me too. Which is just a sort of rocket of a book. Um, and I'm happy to report that it, The Mars Room is just as sort of kinetic and richly textured and amazingly voiced as um, the flamethrowers. So it's a it's a very different story. It's a contemporary story of a woman, Romy Hall, who is sent to prison in Los Angeles um, because she's murdered a former client at the strip club that she used to work at called the Mars Room. And um, it's narrated mainly by her, but you also get some perspectives from various people she interacts with, um, two men who are... Uh, one of whom is in another prison, one of whom teaches in the women's prison. And also you meet a lot of the fellow prisoners that that she befriends or hates or um, interacts with every day. And so it really feels like a group novel. But um, I think, I mean, I found it to be a very effective and scathing critique of mass incarceration in America and also a very unflinching look at poverty and the way that poverty um, in many ways very unfairly is is a route into prison. Um, and But it's also just, it's a beautiful book. I mean, the way that she's able to inhabit voices is is really, I don't know, I haven't encountered an author like that in a really long time and, and I really loved reading it, so recommend it i've been wanting to read it for so i just gave it to a friend of mine actually being like read this instead of me because i don't have time but please <laughs> yeah it's 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 really good it also has stuff from the unabomber i mean she's doing a lot <laughs> maybe not always like 100 percent effectively but i always like novels that are ambitious rather than perfect and i thought this was the perfect encapsulation of that That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Anne Rowe, to Paula at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. The True Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us via email, litfriction at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. We really do. We'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.